quick word on some of the language you're going to hear in this episode. There's usually a restriction on cursing in AA-sponsored meetings and events, but this episode explores young people's AA, a subset of the organization with its own traditions and rules. We had the opportunity to enter a world not many people get to see. We were really touched by the honesty and openness of the people we encountered there and decided to share these interviews with you as we recorded them, curse words and all. If you would prefer a curse-free version, head over to our website, voicesofrecoverypodcast.org. Welcome to Voices of Recovery. I'm your host, Jackie Danziger, and we are back with season two. And just to keep our listeners guessing, we decided to open the first episode of our recovery podcast at a casino. Tell, tell me, where are we right now? So right now we are at Seven Feathers Casino down in Canyonville, Oregon. Can you just describe the scenery around this casino? We're completely surrounded by, I guess, they're mountains. Big hills. Why, you ask? We are here for the Oregon State Young People in AA Conference, also known as ASIPA. How's it been having a sober conference in a casino? I have chosen to not gamble. (laughs) A lot of people are gambling, which is really fun. It's definitely a different experience. I know that they've done it before. We chose to do it here. Eugene actually did not have a hotel big enough for us. They need a big venue because this event is a big deal in their community. Hundreds of people attend from all over the region. Most of them are in their 20s, but the conference is open to anyone who identifies as young or young at heart. You're gonna hear a lot of acronyms. There's YPA, which literally stands for Young People's AA. Then there's the regional distinctions, like ASIPA, where we are today, Oregon State Young People's AA. There's ORKIPA, WACKIPA, you get it. There's a lot of moving parts to these conferences, and we were lucky enough to meet up with one of the organizers to get a lay of the land. My name is Laura. Um, I am the Aussie Pop Programs Chair of the Aussie Pop 5 Never the Same Conference. So right now we are in the pre-conference area. Um, We are right by the main meeting room and the panel meeting room. Uh, There's a little hallway that has registration and all of that kind of stuff. This is kind of a hangout section. Awesome. Let's, Let's check out the first room. What's going on in here? So right now, it's um, a pride panel. It's the pride overcoming fear and finding peace. Um, It looks like they're just finishing up. So they are circling up and doing the serenity prayer right now, which generally symbolizes the end of the meeting. What are all these tables set up for? So these are outreach tables. Um, Different committees from all over Oregon and California as well can sit and have their tables set up and get people to conference or sign up for their conferences and outreach their events that they do. Cool. We're like in sort of a crowded area. People are going around. We're recording for a podcast right now. Um, What's your organization? Which one is this? So Orkipi is the Oregon Regional Campout of Young People and Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, It's kind of the summertime equivalent of this. Uh, Salem, Oregon is hosting it this year, and it's going to be at Silver Falls State Park. I appreciate your nice logo design. (laughs) Looks good. Bye. 
All right, what else are we looking at? So this is the sticker area. It's everyone gets a lanyard when they come to a conference, so everybody knows who each other is, basically. What uh, what kind of decorations did you guys get for the lanyards? So we did a lot of emoji stickers this year, a lot of really glittery stuff, just really fun and different than I've ever seen before, I guess. And uh, before we leave this area, I just want what, to, what's going on in this room over here? So this is the event room. Uh, they just finished up bingo, uh, but tonight there will be a Candyland-themed dance going on in there after the main meeting. Cool. All right, so we're passing the registration table, and we're heading outside. And if you could just describe this scene, because I feel like this is really emblematic. <laughs> so this is the smoking area. Everyone comes out normally after every meeting and every event and hangs out with their friends or meets new people and smokes cigarettes or vapes. It's a very... AA thing I've found. Yeah. <laughs> it's like kind of the easiest way to identify like, oh, is there a meeting going on yeah. here? <laughs> yeah, exactly. This season, we wanted to explore the joyous and exciting side of recovery. Our first four episodes will all relate in some way to the people we met here at Asipa. Often, the path that leads a young person to get sober in their teens and early 20s isn't easy but there is a uniquely fun spirit to this recovery community. And that's kind of part of the mission statement. Here's Laura again. So YPAW is really a lot about showing people that we can have fun and be crazy and be silly and goofy and, you know, let loose and go to dances and have a really good time. And here, I think at YPAW meetings, I hear some of the most raw, true, real, stuff people are just vulnerable and really really honest and I do believe that that happens in grown-up AA as well um, but there's just something about it for me because I am a young person that I can relate to more and it's just fun it's just a really good time and the fellowship is really strong because we're all young people or young at heart who have that bond that connection and it's for the first time for me in my life that I've ever felt a part of When we were preparing to attend the conference, everyone kept telling us they rage all night. And I admit, I was a little skeptical. Well, equally skeptical and concerned about my own stamina. But the rumors were true. There were dances which officially started at 10 but didn't really get going until midnight, and speaker panels in the wee hours of the morning. How late were you out last night? Um, I think I sent my last text message at like 3.40, so that was when I was like letting the last person into my room and we went to sleep. So that's not as late as some people were up all night, some people didn't even sleep. So I think when a lot of people hear like young people hanging out in a casino until 3.40, they assume yeah. that it's got to be fueled by drugs. Yeah, it's all <laughs> bad, exactly. How do you guys have fun and like rage until 3.40 without booze and without drugs? Yeah. Well, uh, energy drinks, so lots of caffeine, so caffeine's a drug. <laughs> so there's that, you know, and uh, you kind of learn to try to use responsibly with the caffeine intake, but uh, and, you know, it's really just, it's like the magic of the fellowship. It's like that, that same magic of one alcoholic, like talking to another and helping another person. Like you just find that in like the craziest places at three o'clock in the morning where you're talking with some other person who lives on the other side of the state or in a different state and you're kind of sleep deprived and delirious. So it makes it even more crazy. You know, it's, it's all part of the, the experience. You get fueled by like the energy of like, you know, this crazy unity that happens at these conferences. At Asipa, they honor traditional elements from AA while adding to them and flipping them on their heads. 
For example, the speaker's greeting. I'm sure if you've ever been to an AA meeting or seen one on TV, you're familiar with the traditional, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic, followed by, hi, so-and-so. Well, here's what that sounds like at a young person's conference. And there are corresponding hand gestures, and you do it every time. Like many AA groups, they read from the big book. Each meeting started with someone reciting how it works. The gist of that reading is essentially, if you do what we say, you'll get sober. And if you don't get sober, it's because you didn't do what we said. It starts, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. The Big Book was composed by AA founders Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob Smith, along with several other founding members, and was published in 1939. And even though some of the passages are more outdated than others, these young people obviously have a certain level of reverence for it, because they choose to initiate every meeting with it. But again, it's open to some creative license. Here's an organizer speaking from the main stage on the first night of the conference. He picks up where I left off. There are such unfortunates. They're not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of demands rigorous honesty. Rigorous. Their chances are less than average. I believe there are average. those two who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders. I'm not emotional! I was not prepared for this level of shouting from the crowd. I felt like I had accidentally walked into a midnight screening of Rocky Horror Picture Show, expecting it to be like a sleepy art house film. This was a rowdy room, and it wasn't just one guy in one meeting. Every session had their own group of hecklers and their own call and response and the different speakers played with the reading in all sorts of ways. Here's that same passage delivered the next day. In addition to panels, there are all sorts of activities during the day, from pool parties to bingo. I checked out the variety show. All right, it looks like we're going to start the show. Everybody, welcome to the conference variety show for Aussie Pop. Hi. Oh, I'm going to sing a song to you. It's uh, by Dolly Parton, and it's a song about codependency. It's called Jolene. <laughs>
the day that I was decided to clean out my closet, um, literally, and I found my old journal um, from the early days. And so I was flipping through it, and I was kind of surprised by how not dramatic it was. And then I found this, and um, it's a very, it's an unfinished letter to past me. Um, this was my idea, my sponsor didn't suggest it. It also has like a small attempt at a fourth step underneath it. Um, so here goes. Dear past me, I forgive you for abusing your mind and your body. You were scared, young, and lost. You really just wanted people to love you and think that you were fun. You also wanted to feel better and mask your deep, driven insecurities. You used drugs and alcohol to escape because it was easy, felt good, and a lot of people did it too. During the conference, there are marathon meetings 24 hours a day. So if at any point someone needs to talk or just have a safe, supportive space, they can attend a more traditional AA discussion meeting. I went to one first thing on Saturday morning, and while there, I met a girl who kind of surprised me. We're at a 9 a.m. meeting. Everyone's listing their gratitude, and then this girl pipes up from behind me and starts listing all the reasons why she is over AA. And I knew I had to follow up with her. Do you feel uh, comfortable sharing just your first name, how old you are, and your sobriety date? Sure. Aaliyah, I'm 22 years old, and my sobriety date is 8-4-17. So we were just sitting in a meeting together, and the, the topic was letting go, and everybody was talking about how the steps will set you free. And do you mind just sort of recapping what you talked about in the meeting? Sure. Um, I spoke about my journey getting sober at 19 and working the steps with a couple sponsors a couple times and getting to 21 months of sobriety and then relapsing and then getting seven months working with another sponsor, completing another round of steps and how, you know, I relapsed again and now I'm back, you know, and I have three months and I'm just so reluctant to get back into the steps and with sponsorship because I just I feel like I have genuinely tried it and it doesn't it just doesn't it works for some things but as far as healing me like my spirit and just you know learning to love myself again I feel like or love myself in the first place <laughs> I just feel like it doesn't, it didn't do that for me, you know. Like clearly there, you see the things that are sort of lacking in the program, but you chose to be here today. Why is that? I chose to be here today because I need to be in a place of recovery for uh, my mental health, you know, for 
just for my for my recovery the way that I work my recovery is still very AA based because that is where I got sober and I have been very committed at one time so it's like I can't I can't just erase that you know and it's just good for me to to be around other people in recovery not even just young people you know just people in recovery I love the speakers because I forget that recovery can be for me too it doesn't it doesn't mean you know 12 steps or aa like recovery just being sober is can be for me too what are like the things that you're like over with aa or like the things that you wish were different i'm over a fourth step <laughs> i'm over amends i'm over sponsorship i'm over birthdays i'm over I'm just over the steps in general. Like, I'm so, like, resentful. <laughs> like, you can hear I'm just yeah. so, I hate it. I guess, what would you say to somebody right now that's in it and still active addiction that has a lot of resentment towards what they think AA is about and it's either, you know, continuing to use or giving AA a shot? If you're, you know, if you're in active addiction and you're, like, in my experience when I was broken enough, it didn't matter like my resentments and stuff like priority was getting clean and sober and ending the horror that I was living in so you know I guess if your resentment is that big that you won't even step foot in an AA meeting even though you're dying I mean I don't know what to tell you like you have to squash your pride somehow because this program is incredible and you know it saved lots of lives and the doors are always open and they swing both ways and you know you can always come back I don't I've never been like judged for the things that I've said like I go to meetings all the time and I'm like I fucking hate AA <laughs> and they're like some people laugh you know and some people are just like whatever but it just doesn't matter at that point like your resentments you have to put them aside and get to some space of recovery At night, people hit the buffets and the game floor in anticipation of the main meetings. The conference is a culmination of a year of hard work for the committee members. This is not the only event put on by WIPA. We heard about Orkipa earlier, and there's all sorts of activities happening year-round for young sober people. These are highlighted in the big slideshow on the final night of the conference. It's similar to something that you might see at a reunion or a high school graduation, Smiling faces set to sentimental music. But it is definitely effective. Emotional, celebratory, and like everything at WIPA, fun. If the slideshow is an exercise in laughing through tears, then the speaker meetings take that to the next level. Unlike an AA discussion meeting, where people usually talk for five to 10 minutes, here, speakers are invited to share their stories in depth with unabashed honesty about the details of their addiction. They bring their own mix of humor and hope. Here's an excerpt from one of those shares. You know, I, I, 
been coming around to, to live mod conferences for a little over 10 years now, and I've always hated that. <laughs> Except tonight. <laughs> this is the first time it's ever been directed in my, ever directed in my, uh, a little choked up. It's, ever, it's the first time it's ever been directed towards me. I got choked up while watching the, uh, watching the slideshow. You know, that's, first of all, I miss my friends. I got sober in Boston. And I was, uh, I was brought into a long tradition of well-founded degenerative dirtbags who got together on Wednesday and Friday and Saturday nights and against all odds, they stayed sober. I remember the first time I was ever introduced to young people's Alcoholics Anonymous, I, I had just spent three days keeping heroin on a three-day train ride from Portland to Boston and I used uh, with uh, Pringles cup after Pringles cup full of, uh, full of whiskey. You know, one of the first things they told me was that, you know, we'll go where you're invited. And they would take me to young people's conferences where they said, we love you, Sean Plotson, and fucking creepy. <laughs> really, really creepy. And it's awesome. And I found a, a place in Alcoholics Anonymous. For the first time, I'd been in and out since I was 12 years old. By 12, I, had, uh, I was a felon. I was locked up by 14. My father was murdered. I was an orphan. None of these things made me an alcoholic. Before I ever picked up a drink, I suffered from a lot of the things that people come to Alcoholics Anonymous to escape. Sean found support and sobriety in WIPA, but life presented new challenges. A divorce, a codependent relationship, and a through line of severe depression. He relapsed and went to a dark place for several years. After many twists and turns, he found himself on a bus heading home to Boston, once again determined to get sober. In about 24 hours, we were making our way somewhere through, uh, through Pennsylvania, and I realized that I'd stayed sober for 24 hours. And uh, I got dropped off in Boston and somewhere at 2 a.m. in the morning. And it was a Saturday morning, and I knew if I waited till 7.30 that night, I could make my way to Brookline Young Peoples. But I just spent the day praying. Spent the day praying to a God I didn't believe in. I spent the day praying to a God that I hated. I spent the day praying to every drop of rain to make me not drink today. Because if I can get to that meeting, I know I'm going to be okay. It's the only place I've ever felt safe. It's the only place I've ever felt hope. And uh, I got to the meeting about two hours early. And uh, luckily, they were having some sort of committee meeting there. And there was somebody there who knew me from the last time I was there, except this time I was 300 pounds and jaundiced and my liver given out, my kidneys were failing me. And he looked at me and he said, holy shit, Sean. He said, what are, you, what are you doing? And I was like, I've spent the last five years trying to drink myself to death, I need help. And he was like, sit down, and he got me half a cup of coffee because I was shaking too hard, I would burn myself. I sat there in the room and the next person, the next person who walked through the door, wore this brown leather jacket. He was like this Euro trash clubby dude. <laughs> very pretty. All the girls liked him. I hated him immediately. <laughs> and he beelined through the crowd of smiling, adoring fans. And he made his way to down there. I'm sitting in the corner and I'm just like yellow. And I'm just pissed off trying to scowl the world away. Because if you talk to me, I'm gonna fucking shatter talk to me, you're going to notice that I'm not going to amount up, that this is a waste of time, and you'll figure me out. You'll figure out that I'm actually not a tough guy, that I'm actually just terrified of you, that I, you know, and, um, and he made, with a big shitty grin on his face, he's like, hi, my name's Nick, what's yours? 
oh, fuck this guy. <laughs> Despite his best efforts, Sean could not shake this guy. They sat together, and Nick gave Sean his phone number and told him he was there if he ever needed anything. Sean made his way into a shelter and was living in what he described as a Lord of the Flies-style holding facility. And I was living in this shelter, and they had a couple of silver beds, and I was waiting to get into a halfway house. And I wake up the next morning, my, my roommates, I was snoring so bad, and I stunk so bad, that my roommates had dragged my mattress, me and my mattress, to the hallway. And uh, people were passing me, laughing at me as I woke up. And I realized in that moment that I needed to kill myself that day. But first I wanted to call this jackass Nick to tell him why YAA was so messed up. Again? Nick took the abuse. Sean yelled at him about all the things that did not make sense about AA, what he resented, why it was wrong. And instead of taking it personally, Nick asked him if visitors were allowed at the shelter, got in his car, and drove two hours and visited with Sean. They shared their stories together and read from the big book. And that was the first time that I'd ever been introduced to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've sat in chairs and I've tried to... I've tried to work my way sober. I've tried to thug my way sober. I've tried to buy my way sober. I've, I've sat in your chairs and I drank your coffee and I thought if I came to your meetings and I read your little crap on the wall and I listened to your garbage because I knew you weren't like me, that I was gonna stay sober. And I remember one, I remember one Saturday, it was the same thing. I'm sitting there and I'm hearing, you know, spirituality, fellowship, and I'm like, this sucks. And and I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's like this is a, this is pointless. Like I've tried the sober thing, this doesn't work. I should just kill myself. And I don't know, I hadn't heard anything the whole meeting, I never heard anything, any meeting I've ever been to, and all of a sudden, for the first time I hear something. How long are you going to consider yourself a member of a 12-step fellowship and ignore the 12 steps? Damn. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> and I realized in that moment, the, it's not about the words. It's not about, it, it's not about this book. I mean, it is, but it's not. It's not about, I mean, a book written by an alcoholic, failed, stockbroking, womanizing kind of dirtbag. <laughs> Not a great idea to base your life based on it, if you just ask it a normal person. But here we are. <laughs> but I realize it's about the language of the heart. It's about love and service. It's about unity. Parts of Sean's story reminded me of Aaliyah, who also railed against the rules and conventions of AA but believed enough to keep showing up for the fellowship that she found there. I spotted her in the audience during Sean's talk, leaning forward with a big smile on her face. I ran into her afterwards at the table of speaker tapes, and her demeanor was so much lighter. Recovery is a team sport. Being at this conference, I saw people new in their recovery get inspired by people a little further ahead, and often vice versa. The sharing of stories and celebration of recovery is infectious. This spirit of collective celebration comes to life during the sobriety countdown, an event I heard a lot about when I asked people what they were looking forward to at the conference. Tonight is going to be really amazing. 
The main meeting tonight is going to be amazing. Every yeah. year there's a sobriety countdown. It's going to be really emotional. I'm excited for the sobriety countdown tonight. There's a sobriety countdown, which is my favorite part of every AA event that I've ever been to. So a sobriety countdown is we ask everyone, you start with like 40 plus years and someone will stand up for their time and you go down by year all the way down to the day to the hour. Shit is just the very Asipa way of acknowledging that no one has that particular amount of time. After several more rounds with no takers, I start to worry is this conference too young? But just then, there's a taker. Terry, the old timer in the back, stands up and waves his hands. It goes on like this for a bit, but really picks up momentum around the one-year mark. People are popping up all around, and the whole room is ringing with applause. After the one-month mark, the tone shifts as they start counting down by days. It gets really exciting. The newest person has just four days sober. They walk on stage to huge applause and shake hands with Terry, who, 35 years sober, hands off a big book and a copy of As Bill Sees It. I caught up with Terry and asked him how it felt to play such an important role that evening. What was that? Oh, I just happened to be the one with the most sobriety in the room this, this time. And how many years is that? How many years are you sober? 35. I didn't mention this, but I had taken an interest in Terry way before he stood up during the sobriety countdown. He was kind of my kindred spirit at the conference because he was stationed at the back of the main room wearing a big pair of headphones and tinkering with audio equipment. I am recording the speakers and panels of Vasipa. And how did you get involved with recording these meetings? There was a man in my first home group that was recording, and I helped him, then took over. By now, you figured out that Terry is a man of few words, very direct. But he did give me a little advice about recording recovery stories. I don't know. Don't be, uh, don't be straight-laced and, and don't uh, have a fixed object in mind because every venue is different. How, how is this Asipa, these young people conferences, different than some of the other meetings that you record? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, other conferences, uh, there's just as much enthusiasm with the old folks, you might say, as there is with, uh, with the young people. Uh, it just is uh, more apparent at a young people's conference. Mm. Uh, in, in, in the uh, regular conferences, there's the, the people who do uh, all the work and the people who enjoy what they've done. <laughs> 
What Terry's getting at there when he says the people who do all the work are the conference organizers. And it's true, they were working all the time. Whenever I asked one of them what they were looking forward to, the most common answers were eating, sleeping, and seeing people get something out of the conference. Those were their priorities. They wanted as many people as possible to participate. One of the first things that jumped out to me was that childcare was provided. I kept wondering who arranged this and who benefited from it. Sure enough, it came up during my initial walkthrough with Laura, who opened this episode. We are providing childcare during the main meetings. Um, that's something that's really special to me because I'm a single mom who is also young in sobriety. And for people who have to bring their kids with them because they have no other choice, um, I do believe that people deserve to be able to hear the amazing speakers that we're going to hear and take part in the sobriety countdown and be able to look at the slideshow and see what we've done all the last year. And so because it was something that was so close to my heart and because I was programs, I just kind of made the decision and and I signed up our committee members to take turns taking care of kids during the main meetings so that the parents could experience all of this stuff because it's just so important to me and um, because I am very involved, you know, in the Eugene Young People's Recovery Community and without it, I wouldn't be sober. And it's important for me to be sober for myself and for my daughter. And I believe that everyone deserves that. I feel like it's a bigger portion of young people than a lot of people realize. I think so. What are some things that also people may not realize about that negotiation of being a parent and being a young person in AA? What's, what's that experience like? Um, it's hard. When I found out that I was pregnant and I had my daughter, I really had to step up my program times 10 um, because it's so easy to just rely on your child to want to be sober. And I've seen that happen a lot, but that's not the experience that I want to have. I still want to be able to get the gifts of the program and be the best parent that I can be for my daughter. Because I know that if you have a kid and you do rely on that, or you're not able to make it to meetings because you work or you go to school and you have to take care of your child, it's really easy to just be dry and miserable because I am a true alcoholic and I need this program to be a good person. I mean, were you a new mom when you were new to recovery? Were those both new experiences that happened at the same time? So I got pregnant when I had two months sober um, <laughs> and it was a surprise, absolutely. Um, and you know, I made the decision to, to, to have my daughter and it's the best thing that I've ever done. It has made things, I think, more difficult personally for me. Um, difficult in the aspect of where I just have to make sure that I'm really on top of my program. Mm. Um, so yeah, everything was new. At the same time, I was a newcomer and I was had the pregnancy hormones and was really pretty crazy uh, for my first year. But in the end, like I've worked the steps, you know, I have an amazing sponsor. I sponsor other women and I get to share my experience of getting pregnant really early and being a new mom and being sober and young with other women who have, are having similar experiences right now. I got to talk with one of these young moms, Melissa, who we will actually be catching up with later this season. Being a young mom in recovery, especially young people's recovery, uh, it doesn't hold me back from doing what I want to do. Sometimes I don't get to go and do the fun things. And that's okay. It feels good all the same, you know? Um, it took me a long time to get to that place of acceptance, but I'm definitely there. And the advice that I could offer to young moms is, um, you know, people like kids. I would rather someone bring their kid to dinner than someone using 
or, you know, um, there's a lot worse things that you can drag along with you to like a park picnic or whatever event it is than a kiddo. And, um, I know for me, it took me a long time. I'm terrible at asking for help as addicts and alcoholics. We really all are. And, um, I just have to be mindful that like when I do ask for help, I'm not turned away. So young moms in recovery, I know it's hard. I know it's hard financially. I know it's hard when you want to go do the fun things and you can't and staying home and being the responsible mom. I know it's hard emotionally, but just know that if you reach out, you won't be turned away. And that has been my experience through and through. Not one time I can think of have I said, hey, I need help with my son or hey, can I bring my son? And someone has said no. Laura echoed the importance of reaching out. What are like just one or two little things that help make being a mom work when you're in recovery? I have to ask my friends for help. Uh, That's the main thing that I forget sometimes is I can get really overwhelmed and really scared and uh, feel like I can't do any of it, you know, be a mom or be sober. But I have this amazing community of other women and other moms that I can reach out to for either just experience or if they watch her for me for an hour so that I can get to a meeting, stuff like that. Has AA helped you become better at asking for help? Yes. I still work on it all the time, (laughs) if I'm being honest. I I just want people to know that like you know I'm I'm a single mom and and I don't have a ton of time I I I have over two and a half years sober and I'm still new to this deal, but my life is so beautiful and I just and I attribute a lot of that to Wipaw and being on this committee and sticking out the tough times you know being on a host committee is not always easy but it's so worth it in the end and being able to be here and see all these other people experience this and enjoy it and get that fire underneath them for being sober is it's really incredible and I wouldn't change it for anything. So far, we've covered talent shows, countdowns, slideshows, speaker meetings, but there's a lot of unscheduled fellowship happening as well. The conference is not just a series of events. It's an opportunity to catch up with the people who supported you through early recovery. Melissa introduced us to the group of young women who were her early support. I'm Melissa, I'm 26. My sobriety date is September 22nd of 2014. I'm Sam, um, I am 26. My sobriety date is 12-2014. My name is Madison, I'm 21 years old and my sobriety date is February 12th of 2015. My name's Bree, uh, my sobriety date is October 22nd, 2015. These women are really fun. Are you allowed to laugh? You're allowed to laugh. Like, <laughs> what? Yeah. Okay. So, so it's supposed to be candid. Yeah. Okay. And very open about how far they've come. YPA gives them a chance to interact with other young people who have varying amounts of sober time, which makes them grateful. But it's not always easy to watch others learn lessons that you've already mastered. You've had that experience before, and you're like, why the fuck are they doing that? You know. But then you have to remember, like, I had that experience, you know, and and I went through the pain that they're probably going to go through to know what I know now, you know? But it bugs you watching it (laughs) because you're like, you look like a dumbass. Yeah, I think Uh, it's a lot of self-righteousness too. uh Like for myself, it's like pride. It's like self-righteousness. Like I've already been there. Like what are you doing? You know, but then it's like you got to meet. That's like I think what I have been trying to work on in my sobriety today is like meeting people where they're at. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that means, you know, like not trying to tell people the answers. 
And that's why we're all sponsors, you know? And, like, we get to walk through the steps with other people, meeting our sponsees where they're at, you know? And a lot of my sponsees, like, I look at them and I'm like, yeah, I already know how that's going to turn out. So if you could just listen to me the first time, like, I'll tell you the right answer. But that's also, like, self-righteousness as well, you know? Because, like, who am I to, like, tell somebody their experience? Mm -hmm. We to stay sober, need to give that back. You know, that was given to us and, and the non-judgmental and, you know, pulling us into the middle and all of that stuff. And I think that's sometimes where the break happens, you know, between the newcomers and the people who have a little bit of time. If the people with time are behaving that way, you know, then then what chance does that give the newcomer? Um, and so really having to check yourself on that. And I think everyone goes through the period of time where there's prideful and self-righteous and all of a sudden you have this life that you know you're so busy and responsible you've been giving all these things from AA and so you're like I don't have time for that right now and then you get a little bit more time and you're like oh I'm forgetting what the program's all about. They can be empathetic because they remember what it's like to feel like you have no life skills like you missed part of the growing up experience. When I Got sober, I was 18, and I ended up going back to high school, like brick and mortar high school. I had been sober for like six months or whatever it was, you know. I was around all of these like 16, 17, 18 year olds, people that were my age, and I could not relate to them whatsoever. They would talk about like, they would talk about like their allowances and mm -hmm. like, mom wouldn't let them do this or like whatever, you know? And I'm like sitting here and I'm like, I'm a junkie off the street. Like, yeah. what are you talking about? <laughs> That's the thing is like, I can't relate. Like, I just, I don't even know how to look at that because I mean, I moved out when I was 15 and had mm -hmm. tried to get so I got sober when I was 23 and I had gone to three different treatment centers and been homeless for the past four years, you know? And so that just doesn't even make sense to me. You know, I look at my brother and he lived at home till he was 18. And I guess why I say I don't know how to have life. I didn't have life skills is because I see like the things that just like you inherently like gain when you when you stay at home for that period of time and finish mm -hmm. high school and, and, you know, have a chance to go to college and all that stuff um, that we had to do later on because we were we just weren't in that environment, mm -hmm. you know, at least for myself. So I don't. Sometimes I like think about what it would have been like to to do that, and I, and yeah, they they still don't have like a lot of life skills because they're young, but they gain some different ones than I mean we were street smart, we were you know we knew how to hustle, we knew how to get what we needed, got knew how to find a fucking doorway to let sleep in, you know. But other than that, like nothing hygiene, nothing. I couldn't even like go outside like at first, you know what I mean, like. <laughs> I literally couldn't, I couldn't like go up to somebody and like have a normal conversation without being like, I'm a drug addict. <laughs> like just so you know. Um, and I felt like really different, you know what I mean? For a really long time, like I did not know how to talk to anybody and I would like do this thing where I would like sit there in front of people and like I couldn't talk. Like literally the first time I got sober, I couldn't talk and I would sit there and I'd like rub my eyebrows like so fiercely because I was so nervous all the time. Um, so yeah, I definitely did feel lonely for a long time, but like as like, I learned things from people like showering. They're like, you should probably shower every day. You know, it might be nice for you. Um, and like learning how to like eat and like grocery shop and like this stuff. Like I 
learn to like level the playing field and like don't feel like less than these people as I've built self-esteem you know and now we can go to school and work jobs and and do all these other things where out of our comfort zone of like being around other addicts you know and and feel like we're a member of society and not be scared yeah this is my first year ever doing YPOT and in February I'll have three years of sobriety and I I was just, like, so savage. Like, the savage 18-year-old that was just, like, too was cool just for so school. Savage. No, I was just, like, I was, like, a savage, like, in my head, you yeah. know? I was, like, like crazy. Like, actual savage. Like, an actual savage. You know, like, Madison portrayed herself as, like, the girl that would be, like, I will fight you. Like, that was dead. That's why yeah. we did not get along. Yeah. I, w- I mean, I was crazy like that, you know? And um, I was just really angry and, like, hardened by life, mm-hmm. you know? And, and like, n- none of that serves me today. So I would really... I would consider myself as kind of a baby now. Aussie Paw and YPAW, this is my first year ever, like, getting involved with young people's. Um, I really stuck to women's meetings for a long time because um, that's where I felt the safest. And uh, this year has changed my sobriety more than any other year. Um, being feeling that connectedness with like my peers has been a game changer, bottom line game changer. Um, it's been, it's what I've been looking for for the last two years and nine months, whatever that is, you know, over two years, like I've been looking for what I have found in young people's. Mm -hmm. And now that I found it, you know, like I just feel this deep connection to the world and like my peers and, um, is what I've been looking for. I'm out. That's what I've been looking for my whole life, you know? Like, so it's been a game changer for me and I'm really stoked to be a part of Aussie Pot and just young, young peoples in general this year. I emerged from the weekend, sleep deprived and with a new appreciation for the power of energy drinks. I also had a much deeper understanding of how recovery works. Getting sober young, just means that things got bad a lot faster and the bottom raced up to meet you much sooner. What these young people lack in age, they make up for in passion and commitment. And no matter how old you are, there is something to take from the way that they do things in WIPA. They may drop a lot of F-bombs and poke a little fun at the big book, but they are also inclusive, flexible, and genuinely present a pretty exciting version of recovery. Tune in next week when we'll embark on the first of our follow-up episodes from the conference with Brennan, a keynote speaker who has a unique perspective on recovery. Voices of Recovery was created by Monique and Jackie Danziger and is produced by Serenity Lane Drug and Alcohol Treatment Centers. Writing and production assistance by Monique Danziger. James Tyson is our production coordinator and script supervisor. Our show is edited by me, Jackie Danziger. Our theme song and much of the music in this episode was composed by Sammy Gallo, with additional tracks by Seaside Audio. Thank you, as always, to everyone at Serenity Lane who helps make the show possible. Thanks to Stacey Cannon for her work on our website, which includes lots of goodies like an episode archive, behind-the-scenes content, notes, and information about how you can share your story with us. If you want to hear more audio from Asipa and related conferences, look for Terry by Googling T-Mar Tapes. That's T-M-A-R Tapes. 
and check out his website or Facebook page. Thank you to the Asipa Committee, who took a group conscience and agreed to let us participate in their event. And specifically, thank you to Laura for working with us on the ground. Thank you to Alex, Sean, Melissa, Aaliyah, and everyone who chatted with us that weekend. If you want to get more involved with the Voices of Recovery community, find us on Facebook and like our page. If you want to help others discover our show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. 